Hi, everybody. I'm Jamin Brazil, and you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Jared Feldman, CEO and founder of Canvas AI. That's C-A-N-V-S AI. Founded in 2010, Canvas is a software as a service company focused on measuring emotion. Jared is an experienced entrepreneur and has been named Forbes prestigious 30 under 30, which identifies top entrepreneurs under 30 years of age. Jared, thanks so much for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Jamin. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, almost everyone has taken surveys, but did you know that SurveyMonkey offers complete solutions for professional market researchers? In addition to flexible surveys, their global audience panel, and research services, SurveyMonkey just launched a fast and easy way to collect market research feedback with seven new expert solutions for concept and creative testing. With built-in customizable methodology, AI-powered insights, and industry benchmarking, you can get feedback on your idea from your target market in a presentation-ready format. Oh, and by the way, in as little as an hour. For more information on SurveyMonkey's market research solutions, please visit surveymonkey.com slash market research. That's surveymonkey.com slash market research. Support for the Happy Market Research podcast comes from FuelCycle. This episode is brought to you by FuelCycle Ignition. Ignition is the agile insights platform that enables leaders and their teams to improve product, brand, customer, and employee experiences with no insights experience required. With FC Live virtual focus groups and interviews, an ad effectiveness solution, and survey automation capabilities, FuelCycle Ignition offers the only all-in-one Agile Insights ecosystem for supercharging the relationship between brands and their customers, and serves the world's most innovative brands, including Google, Hulu, Tufts Health Plan, Kahart, and more. To learn how Ignition can take your research to the next level, visit FuelCycle.com. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an absolute honor. I'd like to start with some context for the audience, and myself even. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your parents and how they informed what you're doing today. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting question. So I grew up with both my parents, very blessed. You know, my mother was a nurse. My father was a businessman. One of the things that was unique about our childhood, though, is that we we moved around across multiple states very early. I lived in five or six different states before I was 11. And the core family unit, my, my parents and my sister, had to get used to change very quickly and had to build a, a sort of a resilience, if you will, early on. I know that part of my influence in sort of wanting to start a company more broadly came from uh, my parents and also my grandparents and uncles who were always very encouraging of me exploring things, trying new ways to solve problems and just really being insatiably curious about the world and you know pulling threads. And it, I was always a curious child that was always encouraged to try new things. And so the other sort of element of my upbringing that's, that I think influenced me in a, in a major way is that I have a lot of artists in my family. My grandmother is a painter. My grandfather is a musician. I have filmmakers and musicians and uh, writers. And I grew up playing the, the piano and the drums and lots of different musical instruments. And I, I ended up going to college actually for music at NYU. And 
the fascination with it was always around emotion. I realized that really the point of music, the point of art more largely is to elicit an emotional response. And that always became fascinating to me as a, as just a highly sensitive individual to understand what causes people to feel things and how do you feel what they're feeling? And, and that the concept of empathy and, and that idea was really grounded in my study of music and my evolution as a creator there. And then it wasn't until college where I started to understand more around the business opportunities with emotion. And, and that really kind of the whole psychological underpinning of all consumer behavior is actually how we feel is, you know, all of our decisions that we're making on a daily basis are driven by our subconscious. And so it just became a really fascinating thread to pull to understand how people were feeling and why and to ultimately sort of enable more empathy in the world. And that really stemmed from a childhood where I was asked to change contexts all the time, was encouraged to, you know, pull threads and endlessly dig into new problems and propose new solutions. And then this sort of overlapping Venn diagram with music and just this fascination with how do you not only understand how people feel, but create contexts where in which they'll feel those things and thereby motivate some sort of behavior. That's really my context stepping into the, to the research world is, and uh, how my, my parents and family upbringing influenced that. It's interesting how you have, like, I think it was Steve Jobs, right? His famous dots, you know, you don't know how the dots connect, but when you look backwards, you, you see it so clearly. And it's interesting how, you know, the upbringing where you had fast friends on a regular basis, I imagine those, that kind of a context would create the need for you to quickly assess the emotional status of people and, and really over-index on the EQ side of things so that you could fit in to the, because I mean, you know, moving is hard, moving states is really hard. It's funny how now all of a sudden you started a successful emotions management company. <laughs> Hilarious. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it did highlight for me naturally the value of EQ and just understanding intrinsically uh, how emotions changes our behavior, it changes how we feel about a situation and our perspective, and then ultimately what we do about it. And unfortunately, in you know, in the business world, folks really don't care how you feel; they care what you do because of it. And so there then became this interesting opportunity to to figure out how to connect dots, uh, sort of as you mentioned, like looking backwards. How do we how do we understand how people are feeling and then ultimately what decisions those things drive? And, and for me, you know, I, I became very interested in, in people and understanding sort of complex emotional systems and uh, was exposed to a lot of different people in different regions, right? Like the friends I made in Virginia versus New Jersey versus Texas versus Connecticut versus New York. Got a sort of a, a good sample size, so to speak. Uh, and was exposed to a lot of different dimensions of humanity. And, and this is really the underpinning is, is, is the emotion. But in fact, I just had an interview with the head of customer experience at Disney Parks. And in that interview, she talks about how you know, important it is to connect at an emotional level, but then also in the US, how diverse we are from our points of view. Right. And so like just going through the sample size that you just or the sample frames that you just mentioned, you get a lot of differing opinions based on a lot of all sorts of stuff. And because we as Americans have such a diverse point of view, it becomes even more important that companies are able to measure emotion and getting that information quickly is, I mean, now it's the speed of light, right? So that you can make correct informed decisions. 
It's a really great point that emotion is transient by nature, right? It's, it's, it's impermanent and its relevance has a deadline, right? It's, it's important right now, but it declines in value over time because, well, it's likely to change. And one of the things you just touched on implicitly is this idea of quantification of emotion. Like, how do we actually quantify and put a, put a percentage? What percentage of folks are feeling this way? And then how is that trend moving? Is it, are more people beginning to feel this or are less? And it's a, it's a really key thing in this day and age, especially as our expressions of emotion has become so, it's like everybody has a voice. Expression is totally democratized. And just in the snap of a finger, you can have new waves and new sort of types of emotion that are really driving all sorts of really powerful movements. One of the quotes that I heard from Adam Bain back when he was at Twitter was that the entire business, the monetization model of Twitter is to monetize emotion. It's a quote that I'm paraphrasing slightly, but it's a quote he made in a, in a, in a Wall Street Journal article. Uh, and I, it really struck me because also Twitter was the very first data set that we started to look at. It was all the public and unsolicited tweets about content and integrations and advertising and trying to understand people's emotions. And when he framed it that way, it's like almost all monetization is the monetization of emotions, if you think about it. And it becomes really important to not just sort of anecdotally understand using gut or art or previous kind of methods that aren't necessarily scientific. You now have this ability to be able to at scale and in real time quantify how populations are feeling. Then it becomes really exciting as the researcher, or as a CX professional, like, what do I get to do about this? What does this mean for me? How do I make more empathetic decisions? And, and that, how does that feedback cycle, you know, accelerate such that we're able to move and stay current with culture? Uh, and all of those things open up with things like Twitter at our disposal in today's day and age. I think it was Jeffrey Moore's book, Crossing the Chasm, where he's talked about the only asset a company really has is the relationships with its customers. Uh, it's the products or the services are really just a euphemism for wanting, people wanting to do business with you. And, uh, and I think that's, you know, what you're, what you're saying is exactly right. That just like hits me right in the bullseye, uh, which is we have to be at any kind of a company, even if it's a B2B emotion plays a big part in the overall transaction. And that customer relationship is really the, is the centerpiece or the, is the core asset. And I think it's, I would like to unpack a little bit, give us some context for Canvas AI. How are you guys enabling companies to assess and diagnose their customers or constituents' emotional states? Sure. So Canvas's mission more broadly is to make the world more empathetic. And, and we do this through patented AI and machine learning technology that ingests short-form text, public unsolicited dialogues happening on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, or private and solicited, for example, open-ended survey responses that can at scale understand and detect what we term unnatural language. This is kind of the, the, the crux of the technology that we've developed is we know how to deal with all the strange ways in which people express themselves in the, in the, in the written form. Unfortunately, none of us speak properly, cer certainly on the internet, certainly when we're having conversations quickly and, and in rapid fire uh, fashion. And so what the, what the technology does is it's really good at dealing with modern dialogue, with strange phrases and misspellings and emojis and all the just, especially millennials and Gen Z. It's the first system of its kind that really can, with precision, understand how people feel. So Jamin, you, you say, you know, that ad, it was freaking hilarious. And I say, 
that that ad with just like four crying, laughing eye emojis. And you and I are basically saying the same thing. And you use some strange language and, a, uh, and maybe kind of a hyphen something or misspelled something. And, and I didn't actually explicitly say anything, really. I just noted the ad and used some non-textual cues like emojis. And the exercise for a researcher is to understand that those pieces of text share a common idea. And so what we've done is we've We've developed a framework where we have 42 core emotions that represent the most common ways that people talk about their feelings. And this is, was done by studying tens of billions of signals on social media. This is a little bit of a, a different path that most research companies take, where we started with social data, and it's what trained our systems to be really, really competent at modern dialogue and all the crazy ways in which people express themselves. And so we started very verticalized with using social data and um, creating a feedback loop largely for the media, entertainment, and advertising industry. It's the number one spender on research in America. And it turned out that every single network on the planet knew their operational data cold. They knew exactly how many viewers watched their show the night before, but they didn't know why it was happening. And in fact, they would end up taking days and running a survey or or a focus group, or doing a lot of manual digging. And so Canvas developed a, a standardized measurement of every single TV show. And TV is really just sort of a pronoun for content right now. So it's whether it's a linear show on NBC or an OTT program on Netflix, Canvas is quantifying how passionate the audience is, how funny the comedy was, or how boring, how much love there was for the main character or actress, et cetera. And doing it at scale every day in a syndicated fashion so that Netflix can benchmark their OTT programs against Hulu and vice versa. And that's where we started in using social data. And that expanded to measuring campaigns on social and things of the sort. And what we've been really focused on over the last 18 months is the application of this technology in open-ended survey responses. And this has been a huge need state that we've identified that almost every researcher and every CX professional will nod their head and tell you how important open-ended survey responses are. But when, when you ask them, how do you use it? They tend to roll their eyes. It's such a frustrating experience for them because open-ends are insanely valuable, but they're just impossible to quantify without hand coding. And, and most researchers, most of the time are spending hours in Excel or an equivalent trying to hand code open-ended survey responses to figure out Here's what Jamin said. Here's what Jared said. What are the common ideas and responses? And so we built a platform that enables anyone to take their survey results from any provider and just run them through the Canvas engine. And it will, in a few seconds, replace the hand coding. It basically uh, organizes the conversation, weeds out spam. It, it tells you how people are feeling. It helps you understand the main topics of discussion in a very flexible, easy to use interface that that lends confidence to the researcher. And we found that our partners in media like Netflix and Disney, you know, love it, but also outside of media and gaming and CPG. And we're, we're learning that there's a really big opportunity to help researchers everywhere sort of get out of the weeds and really focus on storytelling. And so that's our focus. That's all that we do is we, we focus on taking people's voices that they give to you on Twitter or that they feed to you via a survey response and try to help you understand how they're feeling and why. Uh, and that's that ultimately, we believe, should help enable more empathetic decision-making by, by organizations. 
me being a survey guy, right? A, a survey is really just a conversation at scale. So if I own a corner market or let's say a small restaurant, family-owned restaurant, I don't need to do an NPS survey because I'm talking to my customers probably every day. Uh, I'm seeing what's happening on the floor, right? However, if I open up multiple locations, now it's impossible for me to keep my finger on the pulse of the consumer. And so now it, I, it's required of me that I start doing some sort of a mechanism to gauge how well my customers are connecting. And that's why we traditionally have used surveys, because open-ended questions are just too complex and take too much time for me to analyze. The really interesting thing about what you're doing is, in a lot of ways, it could become a better survey. Yep. All of a sudden, Jamin, you can ask less close-ended questions. You can hear more of the customer's voice. Like instead of saying, do you agree or disagree that the service was okay? Do you agree or disagree that you like this character? Or however you would sort of end up arriving at, what are your favorite things about this? Okay, what are your least favorite things about it? Just like, how was your experience? And letting people give you their honest truths and enabling researchers with that technology is awesome. Because then, then it's like a superpower. Because before, in order to get that sort of unvarnished truth, you would have to have very non-scalable one-on-one conversations. But as you said, if a survey is, is this conversation at scale, then the conversation should scale. And that's, that's really what the, what the technology is trying to accomplish. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly it. When I look forward to the coming consumer insights evolution, you know, it's, it's funny because surveys now are everywhere, right? And at the same time as that information has been, or capability has been largely democratized by companies like SurveyMonkey and others, who I like very much and is a sponsor of the show. But you know, now anybody can do a survey. The problem is that just because you can do a survey, maybe you shouldn't do a survey. The example I give is just because I have a scalpel, maybe I probably shouldn't just go do a surgery, right? And so, yes, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like, how is Canvas AI qualifying the emotional score that you're attributing to the brand or to the participant. And the other thing I'm really interested in is like, how are you dealing with any sort of like biases that may be embedded in the algorithms? Both of those are very important questions. So let's talk about quantifying emotion and how you do that. Because the exercise is, well, first, one, Canvas doesn't actually quantify emotion. We quantify the expression of emotion. And as part of that, what we've developed over the last six years now is what is what we believe to be, and it's hard to sort of prove this, but it's the world's largest ontology of language. We have the trillions of expressions that our system is looking for that to us mean that that user is feeling something. And this is was painstakingly built by hand and then supplemented with machine learning algorithms and then scaled exponentially over the last couple of years, and in part was designed to update every 24 hours because our founding thesis is that not everyone really has a voice if you can't understand everybody, and language is just changing so quickly. So the first answer to your question is having a comprehensive understanding of what language people use when they're expressing something emotional. Now, we talked about the open-end semantic problem a little bit. It's actually not just an emotion problem. The survey problem, by definition, is a question and answer problem. It's like, I have this question and the exercise is, how can you help the researcher arrive at the answer in as few clicks as possible? That's the whole game as we see it. And so 
to that end, there's additional types of analysis that we need to do, like topical analysis and more theme-based analysis. There are classification problems like Jamin and Jared are both people. And so what percentage of folks are talking about people or something else? But broadly, from an emotion standpoint, which is foundational and is a unique value proposition for Canvas, we're effectively reading the open ends and we're looking for clues that this person is feeling something. And then we're trying to understand why they're feeling that way and doing all sorts of qualification around it. Because you know, Jamin, I, I think you're pretty cool, man. But also the weather is cool outside. And the same language, if about something in particular, can mean something totally different. And so there's a lot of sophisticated edge cases that have to be considered as you think about dealing with modern language, but it's just something that we've been focused on wholeheartedly for six years. And that, this is the recall problem. Basically, if you give me 100 responses and 80 of them have some sort of emotion in it, how good is a system at detecting all 80 of those things, regardless of what the emotions were? But is this person emotional, yes or no? And this is the first KPI. It's a measure of passion. We call it the reaction rate, basically. How emotionally charged is a group of respondents or a group uh, or a given population? And this is kind of, if you're doing ad testing, for example, or if you're trying to pilot a new product or get people's perspective on something, this is the first order of business is to get people to feel something. The next order of business is, well, like understanding what those feelings are. And this is the precision problem. Basically, once you have an understanding that someone's feeling something, then you have to categorize it. Is Jamin expressing love or is he just saying it's interesting? Are we laughing here? Or are we angry or upset or bored? I will say, though, unequivocally that this is not a sentiment problem. And I'm going to draw a quick distinction because most researchers have seen green and red dials that say positive or negative scores. And positive and negative is an unequivocally bad way to think about language. Effectively, if you're really funny, you know, character on your sitcom is people are laughing, then that's really amazing. But if you're a super serious political candidate and people are laughing, maybe that's not so good. And so we actually encourage our researchers to think about positive, negative, not in the experiential data sense, but instead in the operational data sense. Like, is this good or bad for my business or the, the KPIs ultimately that the CFO or the, the shareholders care about? And that's what makes it good or bad. Positive and negative is a conclusion. But so once we've detected an emotion, the next order of operations is to understand how people feel. And so we have this framework of 42 core emotions that is the most nuanced framework we know to exist. But you also have this interoperability with more academic framework. So if you want to leverage Paul Ekman's six core emotions or Robert Plutchik's eight core emotions with the different degrees of intensity, we're giving the researcher total control over the technology to decide how they want to classify this. And so that's basically the process. We get a piece of text. We're figuring out, is there an emotion present? Yes or no. And then once it's present, how can we group it together with other emotions that are very similar and then provide really clear explanations as to what makes this up? What are examples? And uh, why are they feeling that way? What's effectively driving it? So that's how we're quantifying our emotional scores. And it's, it becomes, as opposed to a word cloud, which will just tell you generally people said the word funny a lot, we're attempting to summarize the emotion, humor, and the millions of ways in which people could be expressing that. And that's what the system is really good at. Now, you asked a really important question about bias and having bias make its way into 
uh, algorithms and training set is a huge uh, consideration and important point. One of the things that we're, we're proud of is how our system has been trained on public and unsolicited data going back six years. It's, it's something that makes it unique in its ability to understand Black Twitter and how also how politicians speak and how we talk about our favorite programming versus our health concerns and brands. The system's been trained across 26 different categories and has been trained across a very, very wide population of inputs. And it's it's through that diversification and just making sure that as we refine the systems, we're calibrating it to how the population actually looks and the market we're actually trying to understand. That's how we that's how we ground ourselves in approaching that sort of that sort of problem. It sounds very comprehensive, which is exciting from my vantage point. We've seen major companies make big mistakes in the past, not being conscious of the fact that not everybody is a white male or you know whomever's doing the programming. And in fact, even recently, one of the top three market research agencies had a global report on the state of COVID as it relates with minority groups, and they incorrectly identified African-American as being optimistic through this time, but the framework was not taking, it was, it was taking into account a, like from a, a white person's perspective, right? And not a historical perspective, which blacks historically are seeing more, are voice more optimism, which is really interesting from a cultural perspective, right? I think it's fascinating how you're incorporating the diversity in the points of view, especially in context of our world today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you raised the important point that this is a massively complex issue, but it's just as important as it is complex. And so it's just why semantic analysis generally shouldn't be a box that's checked or sort of, you know, a side project done by one of these platforms. It takes dedicated years of research and understanding to really get underneath the nuances and just the idiosyncratic details of our language and what it means about us when we express it that way. And that's, that's also, you know, it's why I made the distinction that we're not necessarily measuring emotion. We're not hooked up to people's brains per se. This isn't neurological or physiological in that way, but it is the expression of emotion. And, and I just, there's just so much importance in what people are willing to express. And also, as long as you're able to dimensionalize it properly, who is this coming from? What is the history there? And how do we make sure that when we make statements, when we classify things, how do we make sure that this is representative of what they meant and how they felt? Right. And I mean, it's a, like Monty Python had this, I think it was Monty Python had this funny blog on the 26 ways you can use the word fuck, pardon. But the, but you know, it's, I mean, it's like exactly right. I can do a crying emoji. And if you don't have a context of me or, the, you know, the response to what I'm, you know, where I'm applying that then you know, you're probably going to misinterpret it, or there's a high probability you will. That's where it gets super interesting to me. And So I could spend forever talking on this topic, because I think this is not forever, but probably another couple hours. I would love to have a deeper understanding of the algorithms and, and how you're dealing with those issues. But it's, it's exciting to hear that you are, you are and have been doing that. Yeah, thank you, Jamin. Yeah, it, it is probably a whole day's worth of discussion, but there's lots, <laughs> yeah. there's lots to unpack there for sure. As you look forward, how do you think market research is going to be different in the next five years? When I think about what's happening and the changes across enterprises, and we work mostly with large Fortune 1000 companies, 
it becomes obvious that the researcher's role is changing quite a bit with the introduction of new technology. I think it's clear that researchers broadly, their role will evolve. And it's not scary, actually. I think it's a really exciting opportunity. Researchers will become storytellers for the organization. There's too much time being wasted by researchers being like the PA on a movie set. You know, the PA, I don't know if you've had a PA in your career, but like when I was in college, that was my, yeah, yeah, that was my like part-time job. And you're like sweeping the floors and you're, you know, arranging the coffee cups just right. And you're making sure that, you know, the pads and the papers are there and the chair set up for the director and, you know, all the things are plugged in and you're just in the weeds trying to figure out like making sure that everyone else can do their job right. And, And I really like this concept of the researcher becoming the director where with the technologies that are being introduced at the enterprise, at every level, at every single point of the survey value chain, for example, how data gets cleaned, how surveys get designed, how we think about prepping data, all the work that has to happen before you can even sort of start to think about connecting dots and what does this mean for the organization and then ultimately delivering it, right? Like what is the mechanism by which you know, researchers spend hours just even after they have a story putting together the PowerPoint uh, or putting together the, the report that then goes out uh, and then has to be presented. And I think that the entire, all of that friction in the value chain is going to be systematically alleviated and it's going to free up researchers to do what they love to do which is storytelling, which is using their domain expertise to connect dots and to craft insights, which is really just the shortest story you can tell between a data point and ultimately an action that the organization takes. I mean, this is really fundamentally why researchers love what they do broadly, is is to make evidence-based recommendations or decisions based on their understanding of why people are behaving the way that they are. And I think that there's a really cool set of technologies, not just in the analysis space where we are, but just broadly how surveys get designed, how they get distributed, how they get cleaned and prepped, how blockchain will ultimately play a role, how business intelligence tools like Tableau, et cetera, will play a role in the distribution. And as you noted, the the democratization of insights. I think that this swirl of technologies are are no longer just sort of ideas, but you're seeing them be implemented in different ways. And researchers who have spent a long time being the PA on the movie set are going to start to be the director of the data. And I think that all of these tools at our disposal are going to be, you know, are going to make them heroes, are going to make them feel like superheroes and get back to doing things that are powerful. And especially in uncertain, volatile environments like where we are now, right? Like we're in an extraordinarily volatile time in the world and our culture with the pandemic and other things. And I find that organizations that recognize that begin to really double down on the data. They start to say, well, we can't just throw things at the wall. We don't have extra budget or excess experiments that we can be doing. But instead, like, let's found all of our assumptions and data. Let's really prove out what, what we think should work and really understand our customers. And I just see that accelerating because the amount of venture capital and really, really smart people dedicating themselves to these systematic friction points because it's a really enormous market. There isn't a single brand on the planet that wouldn't benefit from being more empathetic, from really better understanding their customer in a systematically uh, less friction-filled way and being able to connect those dots more quickly. The movies that we make today are just so much more exciting and amazing 
there's so many more tools at your disposal than what was even possible 50 years ago. And so it just, it's a very exciting moment, I think. And, I, and especially in periods of volatility or economic distress, it's my experience that researchers really are able to step to the plate and start to make some really important decisions and empower more empathetic decisions across organizations. You have the distinct honor of being on Forbes 30 under 30. You obviously understand the key to success. You don't accidentally wind up there. This particular interview is being done in context of you know, how to successfully manage a career in consumer insights. What are a few recommendations or tips that you would give our listeners on how they can successfully navigate their career, especially from the lens of just entering into the space? Absolutely. There's, there's three things that come to mind. The first is grounding yourself in the fundamentals, that research has been around since forever. And there's a really important step in breaking the rules where you first have to learn all the rules. And this is a, especially for younger people just getting into the space. It's really important to know your history, to understand why things are done the way that they are, to bite your tongue, to know that it's okay to disagree with things, but you have to understand them first. And that's the first piece is, is just really grounding yourself in the fundamentals. And I, and I found that as someone as deeply interested in emotion and technology as I was, you know, near 10 years ago when, when I first entered the space, I had a lot to learn about sort of how does a survey work and why do people perform analysis the way that they typically do? And what are they looking for? And how, how do I be empathetic to uh, the person I'm trying to serve and really understand how they're feeling? And I can't stress that highly enough that that really is the first step is grounding yourself in the fundamentals. The second thing I'll, I'll note is to really seek out innovative cultures. I can't tell you how many ideas die when the people around you aren't supportive of you trying new things that were, in fact, as a research community, were you know, typically more risk averse, that we want to prove things out and try to detail all of the different ways in which things could go wrong and, and, and try to kind of come up with the, sometimes what might be the, safe, the safest option. And innovative cultures by their DNA are encouraging of failure, are encouraging of trying new things. And after understanding the fundamentals, this is the most exciting part of research is, well, I know that we've done things this way for a long time, and I understand why we're doing it. And now I'm seeing these new technologies or these new things begin to uh, enter the space. And the culture at the company you're working at or the company that you're building has to have innovation, like really, really at its core. And I think it, it comes from the people around you, the manager that you have or the investors that you have or the people that you bring on really need to be insatiably curious and willing to take risks in a safe environment. And that, that has to be supported from the top down. The third thing I'll mention is in something, it's a, it's a principle that I learned from Buddhism called the beginner's mind. And it's this idea that as we get older and as we become more experienced, we actually become, we become experts, right? You know, Jamin, you've been in this space for so many years, you are an absolute expert in this space. And the sad part about being an expert though is that there are fewer choices. Right. If Jamin, if I say, you know, what's the right answer, A or B? You're like, well, my years of experience tells me it's A. So that's the obvious choice. And the beginner's mind concept is like if you go back to when you were five 
anything was possible. Creativity reigned and someone would ask you what color is the sky and it could be purple for all you cared. It could be something totally outrageous. And that idea, the beginner's mind is really important to me. It helps me sort of remain in first principle thinking mode to to understand the layout of a problem and what would typically happen, but to really take a step back and say, well, I know that I've got an expertise in this, but what if I didn't? What options would open up? And I, for, for researchers especially, and in launching a career, I think that the, the rate of change is accelerating. The, the amount of new things that have been introduced in the last five years are going to be introduced in the next 12 months. And we have to be willing to ground ourselves in this concept of the beginner's mind to embrace that change. And it's just a, it's just a mentality piece that has been helpful for me that I try to encourage you know, my partners and team members to adopt as well, is what could be possible if you weren't so certain you were right. It's like a fun underpinnings of humility there. And then I think you're right. Like We innately think we know the answer because of history, but actually history is not a good indicator in context of the rate of change, thinking about like social platforms, the impact they're having and et cetera, et cetera. But I love that advice. <laughs> That's applicable to me right now. And I'm over 20 years in it. Yeah, right on, right on. Last question. What is your personal motto? I've got a couple of quotes that, that I think about often. I don't know what constitutes a motto per se, but just some, there's an idea that I try to ground myself in quite a bit. There's a, a Stoic philosopher, uh, Marcus Aurelius, who wrote Meditations, which likely a lot of folks that listen to this are familiar with. But one of his quotes, he says, always bear this in mind that very little indeed is necessary for living a happy life. Always bear this in mind that very little indeed is necessary for living a happy life. And for me, this is about humility and, and gratitude and, and perspective and, and trying to find moments throughout the day and ways in which to view the world that makes me hopeful and happy. And it's, a, it's just a thing that keeps me grounded and generally is a helpful principle and, and just kind of motto to adopt that the world is tough and there's some really hard things going on for a lot of people. And to just find ways to be grateful and to remember that every day can be a good day. And that's, that's something that, you know, on a personal level helps me deal with the euphoria and also the, the panic that comes along with running a startup, especially in a pandemic and, and trying to be an empathetic leader and citizen and just general human that you don't need that much to live a happy life. And you can find those things if you, if you look for them. My guest today has been Jared Feldman, CEO and founder of Canvas AI. Thank you, Jared, for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. My pleasure, Jamin. Everyone else, if you found value, I certainly did. I hope that you'll take time, screen capture, share on social. If you tag me, I will send you a shirt. On top of that, I'd really appreciate it if you take time just to rate these episodes. That's a great way for us to get feedback, but your five-star ratings actually will help other insights professionals like yourself find this content. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day, and thank you so much for listening.